Good to see you all. My name is Will, one of the servants here. And as Pastor Paul has uh, already shared, we are finishing up our series and looking at the life of Abraham. And starting next week in the month of March, we will have and celebrate and look into various passages in the Bible to look at God's heart for missions. And so March will be our missions month. So we're excited for this. Pray that you would pray for this as well. Join us for the next four Sundays. We have a list of guest speakers that we'll announce to the church, and I think it'll be a, a wonderful time to look at the heart of God for the heart of people. But today, we are finishing off looking at the life of Abraham. So if you are able, I want to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. We do this at New Life as just a sign of reverence and act of worship. And the passage that I'll be reading from today is Genesis 17, starting with verse 15 to the end of the chapter, verse 27. So this is God's Word. I pray that you'll be open and blessed and humbled and teachable with the reading of God's word. Verse 15. And God said to Abraham, as far as for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I'll give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I'll establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation." But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or brought, bought with his money every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael his son was 13 years old. When he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that very day Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. And this is God's word. You could go ahead and take your seats. We are finishing up this series looking at the life of Abraham, and as a reminder, one of the reasons that we wanted to look at the life of Abraham is because of our spiritual focus for this year. We have been, since the beginning of our ministry year, which normally kicks off in September, felt that God was calling us to himself and his son Jesus, and therefore empowering and gifting us and calling us to serve one another. And one of the reasons we looked at Abraham is because even though he's culturally and chronologically thousands of years before us, he's a prime example of a broken sinner that was called to God and called to serve. And when you look at Abraham to summarize his life, it's really a basic principle that applies to you and me. God called Abraham to himself so that God could use Abraham to bless the nations. Called to Christ, called to serve. And in the same way, when we look at this covenant, what happens to Abraham happens to you. That God calls you in order to call you out to serve. In other words, God's love comes to you, but to go through you. God's love comes to you not to stay with you, but to change you, transform you, and then go out from you. That's what it really is trying to tell us and teach us. His love in his son Jesus comes to you, but then the love of Christ goes through you 
to one another in this church, but out there to the ends of the world. And that's what we're going to try to consider. And the way that God does this is through this relationship called covenant. A covenant, if you're new to one of our core values reformed in theology, may sound like an archaic word, but actually it's just a legal word. But in the reform circles, we love the word covenant. We have covenant theology, we have covenant seminary, covenant college, covenant children, covenant marriage. Now, covenant, that word is everywhere, so it's part of life in our common vernacular. And as we close this message, I want to talk to you about this everlasting covenant. And why does it matter for your life? Because did you know that the word covenant is in the book of Genesis 27 times? And 13 of those times are in this chapter, chapter 17. And one of the challenges for you and I to understand covenant is because we are not used to living a covenantal life. We're used to living a contractual life. We're used to living a transactional life. Transactions and contracts is what we know, both in personal life and our professional life. Whether you're a lawyer, whether you bought a house, whether you have a contractor out there remodeling your home, we're used to a contractual life and not a covenantal life, and there's a really big difference between the two. We know contracts, we don't know covenants. And even if you think about this, dating in our social lives is all contractual. I would do this for you. If you do this for me, we're consumeristic. And so there's a big difference, as a reminder, between contracts and covenants. Contracts are something that you earn. Covenants are something that's given. Contracts are something where if you break the contract, you lose a relationship. In a covenant, if you break the contract, God saves the relationship. A covenant is a relationship that's unilateral because God says, we're going to be in this relationship that's unique and it's special. I'm going to determine everything about this covenant. Contracts are two parties in which you are equal and you negotiate the terms. See, contracts teach us to earn life. Covenants teach us that we are given life, and it's on Jesus. Now, maybe I could boil it down, because in the Jesus Storybook Bible, it defines covenant in this way. Covenant is God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's the covenant. And we've seen the covenant first, the seed of it in Genesis 12. God says, I'll give you land and people. Genesis 15 is a, a ratifying of this relationship. This unilateral, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Genesis 15 ratifies this, but it focuses more on the land. Genesis 17 is the fullest expression of this covenant, but it focuses more on the people. Because in this relationship, God says, I'm going to bless you with land and people. Genesis 17 is about the birth of Isaac and God fulfilling his promises by giving us a new community, family, and people. And so there are three things that I want to consider with you here today as we close out this series looking at an everlasting covenant. One, God reassures us of his promises by looking at Sarah. God, he validates and lets us, if this is a little bit weird, he frees us to doubt his promises in the life of Abraham. And then the lastly, we'll consider that the covenant comes to you. So when you look at Sarah, God reassures us that he will fulfill his promises. When you look at Abraham, we are sort of given a real picture to say we doubt God sometimes, and God works and speaks into that. And then it lastly shows us that God's love comes to us in his covenant to everyone. It's grace to you and me. So let's look at this. In Sarah, we're reassured of God's promises. Look at verse 15 to 16. Let's read that together. God said to Abraham, as for, your, as for Sarai, 
by the way, I've been saying Sarah for this whole series, and that's intentional. But as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I'll bless her, and moreover, I'll give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And that's a reassurance to us. Now, one thing about Sarah is that, one, she's the only woman in the Bible that has a name change. And she's also the only female in the Bible where we're given her age when she passes away. The reason we need to know that is because it tells us Sarah is really special. She's prominent in this place of God's plan for salvation. Some have even suggested that her name has nuances nuances to it when it changes. Because whether it's Sarai or Sarah, do you know what that name means? Princess. It may just be a different dialect. But some Old Testament commentators, these really smart scholars, say that Sarai may have a possessive, meaning God is saying, my princess. And when he changes the name to Sarah, it's really about just a princess of nations. Because it's suggesting that either way, Sarai looks back to her noble birth. Sarah looks to her noble descendants. You know, he's expanding the promises in the kingdom. And that's why it's something really important and special about Sarah, because at the end of the day, do you know what this means? She's a picture of hope. She's a picture of reversal of fortunes, because you remember a handful of weeks ago, what was the essence of a woman's identity back in that culture? Unfortunately, it was her identity and her ability to have children. So when Sarah, Sarai, was known as the barren woman, unable to have children, No, that's just saying she has no worth and no value, but that's why God says, I'm going to reverse the fortune. Not only will you have a child, but you're going to be the mother and the matriarch of nations and kings. So she's a message of hope. She's a message of reversal of fortune and status. She only had one son in Isaac. She was way past fertility, but she is the matriarch of human Hebrew history. Now, let's look at Sarah. Her life is fascinating. She was faithful to Abraham as a wife, but she also committed really big acts of unfaithfulness because she said to her husband, have a child with my maidservant Hagar. She sometimes vacillated in her walk because we're broken, she's broken, it's honest about life. She committed big acts of unfaithfulness. She sometimes persevered against unbelievable obstacles, but sometimes she also failed. But the steadfastness of her faith, her faith which was big, is really the central feature of her legacy. In fact, the New Testament enshrines Sarah in Hebrews 11.11. It says, by faith. You know, so there's a brokenness of faith, but it enshrines her as this Hall of Fame Old Testament character. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she was considered, since she considered him faithful who had promised. So even though she's broken and she committed big acts of unfaithfulness, she's enshrined as a woman who had a lot of faith. So what's the point about reassurance? Well, in our passage, verses 15 to 16, this is the climactic announcement of the importance and prominence of Sarah's role in redemptive history, especially in a culture and society in Genesis that was absolutely male-centered, chauvinistic, patriarchal. And that's why Christianity, even by enshrining Sarah and having this climactic announcement that Sarah will be a matriarch, is completely countercultural. It's raising the dignity of women, raising the importance, and saying, it's not just going to be Abraham who's the father of nations, 
it's going to be Sarah who's going to be the matriarch and the princess of nations. Completely countercultural because when you remember when she was first introduced, Sarah back in chapter 11, verse 30, it was in light of these genealogies saying that there's going to be an abundance of fertility, people are having children left and right, generation after generation, and God's promises are faithful, they're true, they're abundant, and it goes through generation after generation, genealogy after genealogy, and then when it comes to Sarah, what happens? It says she was barren, unable to have children. God presses the brakes to highlight that Sarah was completely unable to have any children. Let's think about that for a second, because this is why we can be reassured. In contrast to the Garden of Eden, which was teeming with life, there were birds in the air, fish of the sea, and animals of the land. What we see here is going to be a world that was barren. And I think the author of Hebrews is trying to highlight this and saying barren, or Sarah is a world of barrenness, and that's contrasted to the world of life in the book of Genesis. So you have to understand this. The Bible is written with many authors in many cultural contexts in many time periods, but behind every human author is one God the author. That means even though God uses people and reality in life throughout thousands of years with many human authors, there's one author behind the human authors. And if there's one author behind the human authors, that means there's one story. And that's why you can make a comparison. And one of the comparisons that God wants you to know today is that in Genesis 17, there's a comparison back to Genesis 1 through 3. And this is why. God spoke his creative word in Genesis 1 in the beginning of human history, and he spoke into a world that was barren, void, and formless in Genesis 1. In Genesis 17, with Sarah, God speaks his creative word once again in the context of barrenness at the beginning of family history. See, there is a barren world in Genesis 1. God spoke in the beginning of human history. There is a barren world in the infertility of Sarah. God spoke his creative word in order to begin ancestral history. She's highlighted. She's platformed. It's a reversal of hope. God is saying, I'm recreating humanity through this woman, Sarah. She was initially a minor character even in our story. She was marginalized. All the promises were given to Abraham, and the dialogue was Abraham alone. Abraham was even willing to sacrifice Sarah. But now, the focus is going to be on Sarah birthing the son and not just Abraham being a father of a son. Because in verses 15 to 16, God's big, gracious, wonderful, kingdom, powerful announcement places Sarah in the spotlight of prominence, prestige, and glory. Sarah is a princess of the nations. She's the matriarch of Hebrew history. The least significant person has now become center stage and the most significant. And it's telling you and me, not only is there hope because we see hope in Sarah, but it's reassuring that if I can do this for Sarah, I can do this for you. I'm going to follow through with my promises to give you eternal life, to send you a son who will be the seed of Sarah. His name is Jesus, and it will be the father, and she'll be the mother of nations throughout the globe, throughout generations. It's a reassurance to Sarah and to us that God will come through. Sarah had to wait decades before she finally had a child. But God says, I'm going to change your name. I'm going to give you a son. You could bank on me. And that means for you and I here today, we could look to the Bible and look at all the promises. There can be reconciliation. There can be hope. 
There can be comfort in your darkest moments. There can be a God that you can't see but walks alongside of you in their deepest, darkest moments, in the moments that you feel utterly lonely and depressed and broken. You can bank on the promises of God because we've seen him do it already in the life of Sarah. He's going to reassure you of his promises. And that leads us, secondly, to really Abraham. You almost as a contrast to Sarah. There's reassurance in Sarah, but Abraham... You know, there is something really comforting about Abraham because we see doubts that he has, but there's something really authentic about his faith here. Look at verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Now, this is, on one level, this is unbelievable How can Abraham or any of you, God says, Abraham, don't worry, I'm going to give you a son. He falls on his face and he literally laughs in the face of God. You know, you have to have some audacity, some disrespect to be able to do that. But here's what I want to try to highlight. It's not as simple as you think. There's something comforting about this. The first thing to note to get the sense of the context is look at verse 17. Abraham fell down on his face and laughed. And he's talking to himself. He said, I'm saying this to myself. So to kind of give you a picture, a sense of what's happening, God says, I'm not going to take Ishmael. I'm going to give you a biological son. Name him Isaac. Isaac, which, by the way, means God laughs, which is ironic, poetic. Biologically through you and your wife, Sarah. This is Abraham. This is how I interpret it. It was so unbelievable for Abraham. He literally lost his balance and fell on his face. And you and I have done this too. When you hear something like incredible, unbelievable, we kind of laugh to ourselves and we just say, man, who is this guy? I'm 100 years old. My wife, she's 90. (laughs) We're going to have a kid? That's what literally Abraham is doing. He's laughing. He's like, God just told me we're going to have a kid. That's not going to be possible. I'm 100 years old. My wife is past fertility. That's a laughter of unbelief. That's a laughter of disbelief. That's a laughter that basically says, this is not going to be possible. But this is why there's something encouraging here for you and me. I like to think that the reason Abraham had this audacity to laugh before God is because he also had intimacy and fellowship with God. I mean, when God first came to Abraham in Genesis 12, he was 75 years old. Here in our passage, he's 100 years old. And he had a whirlwind of a life. But it tells us that he was doing life with God for 25 years. So on some level, there's an intimacy and a level of familiarity, isn't there? For someone to laugh before God and laugh in his face in this way, it means that at least he felt comfortable. He knew God. There's a familiarity. There wasn't a boredom, but he was intimate with God. Even one commentator, Derek Kidner, says, don't be too hard on Abraham in his disbelief. It says, Abraham's laughter... To judge by God's reply and by Paul's words in Romans 4.19 and following was a first incredulous reaction, a reaction of disbelief, real enough as is shown by his gentle attempt to steer God into a more reasonable path. But he was open to correction. On such genuine struggles of faith, God is never hard. So Derek Hidner is saying that even though it was a laughter of unbelief, I think there's an intimacy, there's a fellowship, there's a familiarity Abraham's living with God. He knew God and God knew him. They were friends. 
And that's why there was an intimacy for him to kind of doubt God in this way. But he was open to correction. He's really pursuing God's will. And Kidner is saying, you're free to doubt God as long as your heart is really seeking God. And he's saying that actually on this kind of genuine struggle of your faith, God is never hard. I mean, you can be honest about this. The promises of the Bible, the promises of this word, if you read the promises of the Bible, they are astronomical. No, they're, they're spiritual, they're kingdom-oriented. And sometimes we read this, and it's unbelievable. You look around in the world, and what you see physically in the world is so different from what you see by faith, and there's a dissonance, there's a disparity, there's an irreconcilable emotional existential difference between what the Bible tells you by faith and what you see by your eyes, and we doubt. Will that person ever change? Will I ever change? Will there ever be justice in this world? You know, we, we, will we have reconciliation? Will I have a thriving marriage? Will my, will my child ever behave? And from you students, you're thinking, will, will my parents ever stop pressuring me and just love me and tell me by his word? You have all kinds of struggles here. In the mean, meanwhile, the Bible says God is love, he's good, he's gracious. And if you struggle with this, the first thing is that you can have confidence that God will answer your struggle, but it also says with that kind of genuine faith, God is never hard. You're free to doubt as long as you're pursuing his will. And I think that's what Abraham did. Verse 18 says this, And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And Abraham is basically saying, There's no way I'm going to have a biological kid. God, Ishmael is my firstborn. Is Ishmael the one, the son that you're going to give me? Through whom? would be a leader of nations. That's what God, Abraham, is saying to God. Did you know, in fact, when Abraham says, is Ishmael going to be the one? Did you know that you and I, in our lives, we do this all the time? That, that one verse, oh, that Ishmael might live before you, do you know that every day of our lives, you and I, we replicate in our own experiences that very same act? Why? What does that mean? Because what Abraham essentially is doing is that he's substituting his plans for God. Do you ever do that? Do you try to substitute your preferences and plans before God? Our tendency is to try to fit God into our lives, but we're called to actually ask God, what do we do with our lives? What do you want us to do with our lives? God's no to our desires is a yes to what we need. Does that make sense? Sometimes God will say no to what you want because he's trying to say yes to what you need. That's why prayers are sometimes tough because we always think God sometimes doesn't answer prayers. God answers every prayer that you give. We just assume the answer is going to be yes, but God, his answer to your prayers is no. Sometimes his answer is wait, and sometimes it's yes. But God knows better than us. He's bigger than us. He's wiser than us. And that tells us that sometimes God will say no to the desires he wants so that he can say yes to the things that we actually need. But what Ishmael represents to you and me is a substitution of plans. That's why we do this all the time. A tendency to say, I'm going to fit God and church into my life when we're supposed to say, God, tell me what you want me to do with my time in life. And Abraham shows us that we're not called to substitute our plans for God. We're called to submit to the plans of God. That's really big. That's really different. Because sometimes, and if not every day and all the time, we want to substitute God's plans for ours. 
Sometimes it's laziness that comes out and we don't want to do what God calls us to do. Sometimes it's rebellion. Sometimes it's idolatry. Sometimes it's selfishness. Sometimes we want to just replicate our own desires and plans. But as Paul Tripp has once says, said, you are not the king of your life. You are not the author of the plan of your life. And the reason is because God loves you so much that he doesn't want you to be king of your life because you're not smart enough. You're not wise enough. You have to follow the great king that God has given us in his son Jesus to reign and to rule over our lives and to figure out God's redemptive plan and how we fit in that plan. And that's what Abraham's trying to figure out. Verse 19 says this. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I'll establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So God says, no, you're not going to substitute my plan. Stick with the plan. Stay the course. I'm going to follow through my promises. See, the problem with Abraham, according to commentators, is that his vision of his life was too small. The vision of God was too small. He laughed in his face and said to himself, this guy's ridiculous. A natural baby, I'm 100, my wife is 90. His vision was too small. His vision of God was too small. His faith was too small. That's the problem with Abraham. It made logical sense. He's basically saying, Ishmael must be my son because there's no way I'm going to have another kid. His plan was logical, but his vision was too small. Abraham, he would have done well if he sang that old children's ministry song that you and I have grown up with. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God can't do. Of course God could give them a biological son which, by the way, points us to the fact that if God could give Sarah a son at the age of past fertility, certainly then maybe, just maybe, God later and centuries later can give a miraculous son named Jesus through Mary. I think that's what he's trying to teach us here. Abraham's plans are small, but they they make the most logical sense, and they actually make the most cultural sense. This is the reason why. No way I'm going to have a kid. Logically, is it Ishmael? Culturally, it also says, all my inheritance should go to the firstborn. That's why you have this fancy word in the Bible that in the ancient Near Eastern context, it was all about the firstborn. They call that primogeniture. That means the firstborn son carries the name, carries the money, carries the fame, primogeniture. Everything goes to the firstborn son. But this is why God, once again, he flips the cultural values upside down and he says, no. I'm not going to go by what the culture dictates in terms of economics and priorities. I'm not going to give everything to the first son. I'm going to give everything to the second son. I'm going to give you Isaac. I'm going to break your logical sense, and I'm going to break the cultural boundaries. Born first in Abram's household, Ishmael was supposed to get everything. By legal right, he was supposed to receive all the prominence and fame and glory. But God says, I'm flipping the paradigm upside down, and I'm going with the second son. He chooses who he wants to choose. Now, this is something that we have to consider because what it tells us is that God has his wisdom and he has the freedom by election to choose who he wants to choose for his purpose and plan. His plan is to make Sarah and Abraham give everything to the second son through a natural, biological, creative son and birth in Isaac. I think he did it for several reasons, friends. It's not just to show God is free and he's 
able to elect whoever he wants. Now, some people ask, why did God have to wait so long? You know, why did he wait for 25 years after they were so old to give them a natural son? Why did God do this? Well, I think there's several reasons. I think maybe he does this to teach Abraham and Sarah patience. I think he does this to maybe teach them endurance. I think maybe he, t- he, he makes them wait to teach them reliance upon God. Because if they finally have the natural biological son in Isaac at the age of 190, then what does that tell the world? That must have been God. He gets all the glory. He gets all the honor. Because if you gave him a son, Isaac, and they're like 30 and 25, healthy, vibrant, then of course, man, they're, it's natural. They're, they're healthy. They're, they're fertile. Of course they'll have a kid. But when he gives a son biologically through impossible means at the age of 190, the only conclusion the world can say is that that's God. I think that's partially why he does this, to make it absolutely clear that God fulfills his promises and he does what he says he will, and it's his power, his choice, his freedom, and his grace. I think that's why he does this. But last but not least, we see the reassurance in Sarah. We see the freedom to doubt in Abraham. But lastly, in verses 22 to 27, when it talks about circumcision, it says this covenant, this relationship is going to come to you. Do you know what a covenant is? Did you know that when God says, I'm going to choose Israel to covenant with, that means he has a very special relationship with the covenant. You know, it's the same way that husbands out there, you say, you can love everyone at church, but husbands will say, I love everyone at church, but I love my wife and kids especially. That's what God is saying. I love everybody here, but we're with my covenanted people, I love them especially, very uniquely. It's a covenant of life. And that's what we see here, that there's a covenant of life. And one thing that we see is that after Abraham gets his commandment, he goes and he's obedient. Now, you have to imagine this. Now, this is just sort of the realistic picture. There's fathers and sons. There's men in multiple tents. Abraham talks to God. God says, I'm going to give you the sign of circumcision. What does Abraham do? He goes back up into the tents, and he's going to grown men. Guys, we need to get circumcised. We've got to cut the foreskin of our flesh and just toss it to the side because we're going to toss our sin away. <laughs> now, you have to imagine that's a real act of obedience, as awkward and weird as it is, because who in the world wants to get circumcised at 100 years old? And that's what he did. And he told grown men and, grown men and sons in the tents, okay, guys, we've got to get circumcised. I guarantee you, even though it's not in the passage, I'm sure there's a lot of grumbling in there saying, there's no way I'm going to get circumcised at my age because it's going to be too painful. But that shows the obedience of Abraham because it tells us this. The covenant promise is given to Abraham. He brings back to the community. A covenant life is not an individual private experience. It's a communal experience. It comes to everyone. And this is why it's so heavily practical for you and me because it tells us your covenant relationship with God means you have a covenant relationship with your friends and family. The number one relationship that you, got, you and I have is to understand that in Jesus, we have a covenant relationship with God. He is our Father. He is our Savior. He is our King. He is our elder brother in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the head of the family. He's our husband. Jesus is everything for us. He's our co-heir and elder brother. Once you have an individual relationship with God in covenant, that relationship informs every other relationship that you have. 
How does it inform every other relationship that you It drives every other relationship that you have. Because once you understand that God loves me through the covenant especially, then I can covenant with my wife, I can have covenant children, and we could be a covenant church. If I have a covenant relationship with God, and through this covenant God says, I'm going to love you unconditionally and unilaterally, that means I can unconditionally love my wife and love my children and love you and me. If God forgives me in the covenant, that drives me to forgive my wife and forgive my children and forgive my friends in this church. If God serves me and he pursues me in this covenant, I can serve and I can pursue my wife and my kids and everyone else in this church. That's why it works the flip side. For people who are not loving, don't pursue, don't serve, and don't forgive, that means they don't understand the covenant relationship they have with God. Because that relationship vertically informs their covenantal relationships horizontally. That's the only way we can actually understand grace, understand truth, understand love. And that catapults us and propels us to really pursue other people with grace, love, and truth that we have been shown in this covenant love in Jesus Christ. Because a covenant life is not an individual, it's communal. It's not privatized, it's also public. It extends to everyone. Look at verse 23. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or brought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that every day, that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was obedient, went to all the fathers and sons and says, God's going to give us a special relationship in this covenant. Let's get circumcised to have this sign of a special relationship. Let's do this together. Fathers and sons, sons and fathers, let's do this together. Why? Because the father sent the son to love fathers and sons, women and daughters. It went down even to the servants and to the foreigners. This is why it's grace, because God's relationship pursues you, and it cuts across all social classes. Everyone received the sign of the covenant. You didn't earn it. You didn't receive it. He gave it to you. That's wonderful. That's beautiful. Here's the thing you have to learn that Pastor Andrew so eloquently brought out last week. We covenant all the time, and marriage is really a big covenant, and we have the sign of covenant, which is a ring. And every time I do a wedding, I say the same thing about a ring. This is the emblem of the eternity of your love because there's no beginning and no end because it's a circle of your dedication, devotion to one another. Something along that lines that's a little bit corny, but it only works in marriage because they are literally in love looking at each other. Here's what you got to understand. Do you give the sign of the covenant before or after the relationship? It's going to be after the relationship. God makes a relationship with you, then gives you the sign to celebrate that relationship. You are husband and wife first before you give the wedding ring. You know, you never give the wedding ring and wear it around before you actually are married. You're in this relationship first, and then you have the sign of the covenant. And that's what God did for us. He says, I sent my son Jesus. We're in relationship now. Now I'm giving you the sign to say, you're special, you're unique. I love everyone, but I love you especially. See, sometimes when you think about the Christian life as a race, you think sometimes God's love is, you, is for you at the finish line, that you're working in your race in order to earn to receive God's love at the end. But no, God is saying, I'm establishing a relationship first. It's at the beginning. It's at the starting line. So you don't work to get God's love. You actually live and work out of God's love with the sign of the covenant and circumcision that eventually points to the sign of baptism that ultimately points to the reality in your son Jesus. You know, just as a reminder, as we come to a close, 
circumcision, which eventually was replaced by baptism in the New Testament, both of them are just signs. But you don't need the sign once you come to the reality. Isn't that true? You know, driving over to I-5, heading out to Los Angeles, L.A. is 30 miles away. You know, it's almost if you could imagine, okay, I'm going to take this sign. This points me towards the reality of L.A. Once you get into L.A. and you're going to downtown and you're hitting a restaurant, you don't keep the sign and say, hey, I'm going to go to L.A. You toss the sign away because you came to the reality of the city. It's the same thing as you're trying to go to the bathroom. It says the bathroom at the airport, it goes this way. So you take the sign of the bathroom, of the bathroom pointing this way with the arrow. You don't hold on to it when you enter the bathroom. You toss it to the side because the sign only points towards the reality. And what this passage is saying to us is that the sign is good, but you don't need it to become Christian because it points to the reality that Jesus is your circumcision. You don't have to cut yourself anymore because Jesus was cut for you. We're circumcised in the heart. He established the relationship for eternity because he gave you his son, Jesus Christ. So we'll baptize one another, our infants, because it points to the reality that we have received by faith in Jesus. But once you have the reality, that's when you actually become part of God's special covenanted family. That's why in Galatians 5, 6, the Apostle Paul says this, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. That the sign that we are especially God's covenanted people is not circumcision, but as Pastor Andrew and I'm saying here today are telling you, it's your faith working through love. That's how it works. You know, in Galatians, they're basically, the church is figuring things out. You know, Jewish people, they became Christian. They got circumcised. They're Gentiles. They come into the church who also believed in Jesus. Now they're saying, wait, do they have to get circumcised or not? Well, let's go to the General Assembly. That's Acts 15. They bring it to the Jewish Council. PCA, we call that the General Assembly. Go there once a year. We go there in June. Let's figure this out. And the people in power said, no, actually, it's just faith working through love, receiving Jesus. You don't need circumcision anymore. And that's a doctrine that goes out to the study reports, and then you have to Vote on it, overtures and presbytery. But you're saying you don't have to do this anymore. You just got to believe in Jesus. Circumcision had a place, but it pointed to the reality. You and I, friends, we arrived in Los Angeles. We arrived to the reality. We have received Jesus. He saved us, united us, he died for us. We have this everlasting life in him. And that empowers us to work and love one another by faith. God's love has come to you but it came to you so that it could move through you. Faith working through love. So that could be the ever eternal sign that you and I are Christian. That's his grace to you and me. That's Jesus coming for you and me to call you out outside of your comfort zones to be loving and gracious and to serve in the many needs that we have at this church. And the challenge is don't wear that sign or say you have that sign of being specially loved people of God if you don't actually live it out. Abraham just didn't have circumcision. He actually lived it out. Don't just say that we're the covenant people of God unless you really live it out in the power and the grace and the glory and the vision of Jesus Christ for you that you can live out faith working through love because Jesus is circumcised on the cross for you and me to make us this new community.
That's the life of Abraham, pointing to the life of Jesus, giving us life here today at New Way Press. As we seek to impact Orange County by making disciples, we're gospel-centered, compassionate, and missions-minded. We're here on into eternity forever. Friends, let's pray. Let's turn to the Lord. Father, we thank you so much for the grace that we received in your son, Jesus, to die for our sins, to give us new life, that you, God, love, tell us, you tell us, God, in your word, John three sixteen, you love the world, all the peoples and nations, but you especially love those who come to faith in your son. In this marriage relationship, this father-son relationship, we're adopted into your family, we're the body of your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray each and every one of us would grow in this and that we can live our faith out by loving one another and our neighbors. Thank you so much for covenanting with us. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to fulfill this covenant that is not a contract, but a relationship that shows us your, your love, your grace, your initiation, your purpose and plan. Thank you so much, God, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.